0: You are listening to an American Theatre Podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheater.org. Hi, this is Deep Trance, Senior Editor at American Theatre Magazine.
1: And I'm Jose Tresleches Solis, freelance theatre critic.
0: I'm feeding Jose a lot of cake today so that he's not hangry and so he'll be nicer to all the shows that we talk about. You're welcome, shows.
1: I won't be mean, but I'll still be honest, except I'll have a smile and a sugar rush.
0: And we are your token theater friends, people who see a lot of theater and love it so much that we'll even eat dinner during the show, because when else are you going to eat dinner? Like, yesterday, while I was on my way to Alice by Heart, one of the shows that we're talking about today, like, I was housing a six-pack of dumplings while waiting on the train platform.
1: That's also like just being a New Yorker.
0: I know, right? (laughs) But also, there should be more dumpling places. You know, pizza's so messy. You you don't know what's a neat neat food? Dumplings.
1: What about, like, dumplings at the theater?
0: Yeah, so theaters sell more dumplings, or yeah. empanadas, or pierogies, or whatever it is.
1: Oh my god, empanadas would be amazing. Empanadas
0: would be amazing. More empanadas, less bad shows.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, today we're reviewing some shows, and we, have an inter- and we have a really fun interview coming up with Betsy Wolfe, and at the end of the podcast, we'll talk about Scott Rudin, everyone's <laughs> favorite theater person. <laughs> uh, but first, uh, what shows are we reviewing today?
1: We have Alice by Heart at MCC Theater, also Hurricane Diane at New York Theater Workshop, and Spaceman at The Wild Project.
0: Spichemin. I know,
1: Spichemin. It's so hard not to call it that. I
0: know. Oh, man, I'm so sad I can't watch Larry Rock on Netflix anymore. Okay. Is it gone? Yeah. Y- you can watch it on Hulu, though. Mm. Anyway, okay, let's start with Alice by heart. Go, Jose. We
1: we saw the show last night together. And when I was sitting uh there at the new beautiful Robert Wilson MCC theater space with its lovely new car smell and its mm-hmm.
0: very, wide seats, yes, wide theater seats.
1: Your knees are going to be wonderful and it was like the temperature <laughs> was perfect. But I was sitting there and just wondering why did the people behind this show, uh book writers Steven Sater, Jesse Nelson, and um, Duncan Sheik, who wrote the music, why did they think that Alice in Wonderland should be about a man? Yeah. And because that's what this show is, essentially. It's a retelling of... Alice in Wonderland, you know, the beloved Lewis Carroll book uh, and the framing device they give it is that they're in uh, the underground in London during World War II and it's the Blitz and there's like horrible stuff going outside and the people who are you know, seeking refuge in the tunnels, one of them is a young girl who's who becomes the Alice uh, surrogate And she loves the book so much. And one of her friends arrives and he's very sick. So the nurses threaten to take him to, I guess, the death ward. And Alice just wants her friend slash love interest back. And as, you know, something else the nurse does is she takes the book because apparently books are bad for you when you're trying not to get killed by Nazis? I don't know.
0: I mean, but what else do they they have to do down there? Yeah,
1: that's never very clear. Like, like, She's just being, like, mean. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, but suddenly this girl, played by uh, Molly uh, Gordon, who plays Alice, she suddenly realizes, uh, well, you can take the book from me, but I'm the book, or some sort of, like, weird metaphor like that. And all the people in the ward just start, reenacting Alice in Wonderland with new songs by Duncan Sheik. But all along, you know, rather than facing her own, what's changing within her, she's just so obsessed with what's happening to the guy that they took away from her, who also becomes the white rabbit for some strange reason. I guess some sort of, like, easy, like allegory about like oh time's running out because he's dying Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and i want him chasing
0: after him yeah
1: but i'm like i don't know why like how do you take alice in wonderland and make it about a man i was like how do you take this book that's so loved by both men and and women and you make it fail you know the bechdel test (laughs)
0: The story is about Alice learning how to let her childhood sweetheart go it's because he's dying of tuberculosis. So I understand it as like a meditation on grief and using literature and art as, as an escapism and a, as a way for you to spend more time with your loved ones and for you to escape, you know, the shitty world, it, it just was so it's one was one of those times where I, I understand what they're trying to do they just didn't do it very well, and I think like one of the flaws is as you know Jose pointed out, the fact that the main motivation for the Alice character is a man It's, it's not to say women can't be motivated by men, but it didn't make sense for the character because this is a like where are her parents where is her family like why is all her why is she so fixated on this person like they, they didn't introduce her or the situation well enough in order to justify any of the emotional commitment that we were putting into this situation it was just this is a sad circumstance so you you and the, the audience must feel sad for these people
1: and I didn't feel sad. I felt so, yeah. I was so angry at the, at the play because one of the beautiful things about Alice in Wonderland, both, you know, almost, I would say almost any version of it that's been adapted into another medium mm-hmm. and also the book is that it's about this young woman not recognizing herself in her own body and being like, why am I so long today? And why am I so weird today? And mm-hmm. it's, it's not about Alice finding man it's about Alice discovering herself and I know that sounds very trite but that's what the book is that's what the property is that's why people go see this and why do you need to turn this powerful feminist text into something about a dude and I just felt that the text was betraying the you know the intention of, of Alice in Wonderland like there was no wonder in this for me at all
0: and uh the team who wrote this, they wrote Spring Awakening, which is which is also like another coming of age tale and set to and and the score is very contemporary. So there's like similar thematic strands between Spring Awakening and this, but I think like what Spring Awakening did well was like it, it established the baseline of what it is and the char- and all of the characters. And made sure that, you know, you saw them as human rather than tropes. And the, and I feel like for this one, like, no one was de- developed well enough. Like, I feel like the even the creators were just so antsy to get us to Wonderland that they forgot to give everyone in that underground subway a personality. Because right off the bat, you're introduced to these people and they're like, oh, this is a Cheshire cat. She's just this weird, this weird lady in the corner. And there's this crazy dude in the corner and just wants to have tea. And I'm like... Why? Why? (laughs) What is the point of this entire exercise? And then there's, and then as soon as they get to Wonderland and what they, and what they start singing about, about being high or about being developed, like there is just some parts of it where I just wondered what is happening and how does it relate to the story? Because there's just, there's, there's coherence. There was issues of coherence. I've seen plenty of experimental theater downtown, and so I know when it's coherent for the sake of being incoherent, and when it's just you haven't figured out like what it is you're trying to say with this scene. Like for example, the um, the scene where she meets where Alice meets a caterpillar, and then she learns how to get high. You know, like there's like an orgy s situation with a lot of people like what, what what was she discovering about herself at that moment what was the through line of that song what was the point and i feel like there was a lack of point to any of the things that were happening
1: she was always in a rush to go find the man mm-hmm. like that was the through line she just wanted to know where the dude was and whether she was going to be able to like make out with him again or not
0: But you know, in the original Alice in Wonderland, like she learns a little bit about herself via each of the characters she meets. But like, I don't think I knew very much about this about this Alice at ninety minutes later.
1: (laughs) Not a thing, and it's so sad because the production has some really wonderful elements. Mm -hmm. I thought Jesse Nelson's direction was spectacular.
0: Oh, I loved it. Yeah, she did so much with. So little props. It
1: was like, so creative. It was so
0: creative. Like I, I love the caterpillar scene where mm. it was the entire ensemble came together to become the caterpillar. And it was like a you know remember human centipede? It was like that, but less gross. <laughs> but really beautifully done in yeah. terms of just like them moving in one as one unit.
1: And also her work with Rick and Jeff, uh Cooperman, I guess, who Mm -hmm. uh choreographed the thing. It's just seamless work. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And also the uh I thought the music by Duncan Sheik was so inventive.
0: Yes. And
1: I found myself often and I think you noticed because we were sitting next to each other. I found myself more often than not looking at the band like staring at the orchestra because i was so fascinated by there's mm-hmm. all these instruments that we don't get to listen very often in oh, musical yes. theater and they had this like weird like tin drum thing. yeah the xylophone yes but it was like circular it was oh. like circular i don't know what it was anyway it was so cool and there was like use of like either i think it was either flute or piccolo there's i don't a know what
0: synths it, too
1: But yeah, but it was, you know, it was so exciting. And when you are sitting in a theater and you're looking at the orchestra more than you're looking at the characters on stage, I think there's something wrong with your show.
0: And it was kind of like pop. And Duncan Sheik is a pop composer. And so I feel like, and so sometimes, you know, with pop songs in musical theater, they just stand by themselves and they don't further the plot or tell you very much about the characters. And I think... This is one of those times where most of the songs... I wasn't even... It was like me going to a pop concert. I didn't really care what the hell they were singing. It just sounded real nice.
1: I'll say that I've never... I don't think I've ever looked more forward to the cast recording mm-hmm. of a show that I've liked as little as this one. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay, Okay. I, I have to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Did you get like a weird sexual overtone and, and they kept like... Alluding to it, but backing away from it. It was kind of like they, it was like Grimmer *Spring Awakening* and they and the kids just full on had sex. Oh yeah, and it was like the culmination of everything that happened. But here, Alice literally tells her childhood sweetheart to drink me, and I'm like, huh? Yeah. But like they don't, they Do never. With yeah, it. they never go full on like this is my sexual maturation as a woman. This is what it's about.
1: That would have been a show if it had been Alice learning sexual techniques and you know for real you know like maybe she when she meets the caterpillar and she learns to get high she's learning about how to have pot and sex you know what I mean that would have been a musical that I would have loved to see
0: yeah or like the queen of hearts teaching her about menstruation yes (laughs) yes
1: and like I well I do have to say I love Grace McLean as the Queen oh, of Hearts. Oh uh, yes, was well, so funny.
0: Well, we also had her on the show, so we're biased.
1: No, but I didn't like her. I wouldn't bring her up if I didn't like her a lot on the show.
0: Mm-hmm. They, they they underused her. Like her voice is just so gorgeous.
1: And also, like the cast itself was so it was this like beautiful combination of people from all different cultural like ethnic backgrounds. The cast was stunning. They were all yes. gorgeous. And I wish we would have seen a show that reflected that diversity more. Mm-hmm. It was like beautiful creative elements put at the service of a very poor book.
0: Yeah. Um I hope hopefully if there's another production they'll figure out what the show is about. More sex. More sex. <laughs> less <laughs> less men. <laughs> or like se- yes, not sex with men, maybe sex with people. Yes. Alright, uh, Alice by Heart is running until March 31st, and tickets are 77 to $127, but uh, if you buy tickets to the front row, that's $25 if you're a young person under 30. So if you're a big fan of Spring Awakening and you want to see if what we're saying is true, then go, go check it out and let us know what you think. We may be wrong, who knows? It may be your cup of tea.
1: Oh, my God. That's like the worst pun. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
0: All right. So our next show is Hurricane Diane by Madeline George, currently running at New York Theatre Workshop. And it is about the god Dionysus. The god Dionyses, they have come back and... They're trying to figure out why humans are letting is letting our planet die of global warming and how we can fix it. And as an experiment, they try to seduce some New Jersey housewives to, like, become more eco-friendly. Like, what is the plot of this show?
1: <laughs> They're just trying to make the world better by educating housewives in New Jersey.
0: basically, basically. And it's really funny.
1: It is so <laughs> funny. If it's anyone like, had told you that a comedy about global warming was going to be funny, would you mm-hmm. believe them? No. It, cause no. Because they sound like, you know, like, I think global warming and I think Al Gore and I think about, mm-hmm. you know, like, being educated and we, well, first of all, like, we both yeah I shouldn't even say it. I shouldn't even have to clarify this, but obviously everyone involved in this podcast believes in global warming
0: <laughs> i mean it's not a, it's not like God, it's a thing that's happening yes. whether you want it to or not
1: And it's not a political thing but uh but yeah, you know it, it, the show reflects a lot of what's going on with the Republican party where they're like they're more about speechifying and like talking than actually taking any action for what's going on in the world with the world today, and they'd rather talk about morals. And about going back to the way things were
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and just think about progress and that the planet's really fucked up and we all probably will die drowned next to a polar bear.
0: Okay, then. Well, that went to a dark place really quickly. (laughs) But the play, the play, I mean, the the metaphor is, and it's a parable. So like any parables, you really got to... You know, think of it as character types rather than as actual people. But the parable is D- Dionysus is coming down and is trying to get these housewives to plant better gardens. Gardens that are more environmentally friendly, that are natural, that are natural to the environment and won't like, you know, degrade the soil and will replenish the soil and make it better. But that type of garden is, is not as pretty as, as, you know, a rose garden. And it may be inconvenient because you won't get, you won't get to have strawberries. You'll, you'll, it's like your plants, your fruits will look like, you know, giant testicles. So you're just gonna have to deal with that. And like, can you deal with the inconvenience to your day-to-day life in order to solve this problem and some people say yes who are more progressive and other people are like no and they refuse and because of them we're all gonna die
1: <laughs> and i i love what what the playwright uh what madeline george does with you know she delivers all these messages in a non-messagey way. Mm-mm. The play is so smart about that. It's you know it's a play about also about genderqueer people and about same-sex relationships and also about like women enjoying themselves sexually, which made me think a lot about uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Pier, pa- uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini's Teorema, in which an angel comes to Earth and he fucks his way through an entire family: mom, dad, kids, everyone. that made me think of that but i love that you know hurricane diana is like teorema with a trans actor as the god who comes to earth and shows Mm -hmm. women you know the importance of saving the planet but also the importance of sex and enjoying sex
0: yes all the actors gave such great performances i mean it's really hard to give nuance to character tropes but like i would happily hang out with with any of these people Even the conservative Because she drinks a lot And I drink a lot And you know what? I, I relate I relate to the quiet desperation
1: She had so much wine So much wine I will single out uh, Danielle's yes! head, though, Who plays Pam She is so incredible She's like this Creature made from leopard print And big hair And s-
0: Italian Yes
1: uh, I don't know. Like, it's it's difficult to talk about that character without sounding like I'm criticizing the character. But she's kind of like a friend Drescher trope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the beauty about the play and the beauty about the performances is that they never look down at these characters. No.
0: No, we're not making fun of them. And, like, we feel sympathetic to them, which is important. And, like, you want them to, you know... To so succeed, like you want them to become better for the sake of humanity. Yes. Though I will say, my uh, one minor criticism I, I have of it is I, f- and maybe this is a budgetary thing, but I feel like the sense of destruction wasn't as potent as I wanted it to be. Mm. And like, I, at the end, like I just wanted everything, like that entire set, to just like blow Fall apart. up. Or like there'll be like a flood on stage or something. And I know this is off Broadway. I know we don't we don't have money, but I'm hopefully in like the next iteration of this and someone can give them more money to really just fuck everything up.
1: You want explosions.
0: I Yes. Because like, you know, Dionysus, like you all associate with excess. I wanted like an excess of like wine and bodies and destruction. Like, I wanted to feel that, and it wasn't quite there. It was building towards it, and then when it didn't quite happen, it was kind of like, um...
1: Anticlysmatic,
0: yes, I guess? Yes. Whoops. fine. Didn't mean to spoil it for you guys. There's always wine. There's always wine. Alright. Uh, Hurricane Diane is running until... Oh, it's running until March 10th. Tickets are 69 to $89. Our third show is Spaceman, written and directed by Grid Stevens in a production with Loading Dock Theater. I've never seen anything from this theater company, but this was really impressive. You know, remember Gravity and Sandra Bullock is just floating in space all by herself and trying not to go crazy? This is kind of like that, except... So our our main character, whose name is Molly, she is on a one-woman trip to Mars to colonize the Red Planet, and she's trying to keep her sanity during this uh, almost year-long voyage. And she is also haunted by the death of her husband, who died in space. And so this is a one-person play, which and what I really love is like how creatively they convey the sense of floating in a spaceship because you know sometimes it's kind of you know you when, whenever you watch Star Trek and they're just walking along the uh, the bridge because they have gravity and so you don't have to deal with the fact that you know in in space in the space shuttles we have now like there is no gravity like you just float and so I think with the, with the space Even with a small budget, they were able to convey the fact that we're in space and things are floating. Like when you, there's this one moment I loved when, when Molly's taking a pill in the morning and she just and she doesn't put it down. She just lets it go and it just floats, like next to her. Like that was like we all giggled on in the audience. It, It was just so lovely. Oh and I think the, and I think the actor and Aaron Treadway like she did such great work like holding us the entire time it was like it was basically a, like a 90 woman 1 minute one woman show in space in a very confined space and it w- and it was just so compelling And I love like every time you think there's going to be a fake out of like, oh, my God, what kind of destructiveness is going to happen? Because it's space and it always happens. It doesn't. It's just like a psychological experiment of like what literally happens when you're trapped by yourself Mm -hmm. for almost a year. The big plot hole is why don't they send two people? Because I feel like that is really unhealthy to put someone by themselves. Because there would be no show. Yes, because there, there would be no show.
1: I mean, what's gonna be like? Apparently, their recurring theme for me this episode.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My biggest problem with the show is that she's so obsessed with finding her husband.
0: Yeah, when, that, that brought me down. Yeah, a lot. when
1: the play hints at so many really fascinating things, because we learn, for instance, that she's also part of this strange reality show back in yeah. Earth
2: yeah. called like,
1: Space Survivor, where apparently they've sent all these several different astronauts and individual missions. And back, on Earth, people are watching what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. There's also moments where Molly's reached uh, by uh, people back on Earth, and where she has to give talk. Sorry, where she has to give talks to children in schools. Yes, and I found that much more interesting than anything having to do with her finding her husband or not.
0: Yeah, it was like the same criticisms we all had of Gravity, where like, oh, she had to be haunted by like the death of her kid. Well, here she's haunted by a death of her. You know the death of her husband and Harry. Like, yes, and they think like you need that to give a woman, you know, some dramatic heft or to give her character. We're like you, but you don't. Like the the loss of domesticity should not be a tragedy for a female character in 2019. Nope. So yes, I found all of the other stuff that was not hair related more compelling.
1: Even her relationship with her little plant.
0: Oh my god she has a little plants, yeah like she has a little poly. plant she talks to yes. yes and like you
1: know like uh what's that tom hanks movie with the ball, volleyball like
0: castaway yeah she, it, the plant was her wilson it totally
1: was and i was more invested i mean in castaway i don't remember it being you know like tom hanks was obsessed with surviving he was not obsessed with helen hunt Mm-mm. she was the woman in that right yes
0: yeah, i think she was a woman yeah. in Castaway. she's like
1: barely in it but anyway
0: yes exactly
1: yeah so why can't we get a female version of Castaway where there's no, like, heterosexual romantic interest driving the entire mission?
0: Yeah, or maybe think of, like, Matt Damon in um, The Martian, where he's trapped by himself on Mars, and he has to figure out how to stay alive, and he's shown to be very... It was like, people call it the competence porn movie, because you just showed him doing stuff.
1: let to grow some potatoes.
0: Gotta grow some potatoes, and that was a, that was a big deal. And here, like, she wasn't allowed to be shown as just being competent and good at her job.
1: She so, just had to go find her man. She
0: just had to go find her man on Mars. I don't even know what happened. It's like... But yeah, the show was kind of like Alice by Heart, where the concept was really compelling, and and the build-up and the set looked really nice, and then... The execution didn't quite work. But this show is... I prefer to see this one more than Alice by Heart. So you know. Same.
1: And I also like how many movie references there are in there. Like, do you want to mm-hmm. know the reason why I remember the character's name without looking it up? Why? Cause it's a version of the character Demi Moore played in Ghost, and her name was Molly.
0: Oh my And she's my haunted. Because remember, there's this scene by Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Remember, there's this scene
1: where she's even like almost reenacting a scene from Ghost, and I was mm-hmm. like, Molly, you in danger, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Stop thinking about this, dude. And like, obviously, there's references to 2001: Space Odyssey and Gravity and like Star Trek and Star Wars, etc., etc., etc.
0: So if you love all those, like, you'll love this play. And any of the benefit of, like, being in a room, seeing how you do it, how you create space live. Like, there is this, oh, my God, the sound design for this. Uh, Ligrid Stevens, who wrote the thing, also did the sound design. And I got, like, this, there was this moment where, like, uh, she's, like, I think when the solar flares were happening. And, like, it it felt like the entire entire theater was shaking, except Mm -hmm. it really wasn't. And I got, like, those ASMR tingles. Like that hasn't happened to me. that doesn't happen to me in the theater very often. So that was awesome.
1: It's quite it the experience. Like the, it felt like
0: it. It was an adventure. I want more of the adventure, less of the you know domestic drama. Same. Okay then. Um, but if you're interested, spaceman, <laughs> spaceman is playing at the Wild Project until March ninth. And tickets are $21 to $30. Also
1: this. Why is it called Space Women?
0: I oh, have no idea.
1: I mean, That's we wouldn't be That's a great idea, right? We wouldn't be able to call it Spachemin.
0: Exactly. <laughs> but,
1: hmm, something to think about, I guess.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, ladies, you don't need a man. Nope. You never need to write a man in. Nope. No. Just like a Madeline George. No man that cast. <laughs> you know what? We did not miss them. Nope. Not at all. Okay then. Uh you wanna intro Betsy Wolf?
1: Next up, our special guest today is Betsy Wolf. Uh incredible actress you might know from her work on Broadway. Like she was recently in Waitress. She was fantastic in Falsettos a couple of seasons ago. And, and
0: her- um and then the revival of the last five years, like a second stage theater, which you can listen to the album and her versions of the songs are, you know, just lovely.
1: Yeah, and she was originally uh in the uh oh my god i forgot my words oh and she was originally in the workshop for frozen and her version what? her version of let it go which i got to listen uh to once at carnegie hall is uh it gives you chills anyway we talked to betsy about her upcoming show at fine science 54 below so let's go check that out we are at Feinstein's 54 Below with the incredible Betsy Wolf. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. What, you know, what why are you doing? Like, it sounds so exciting. What to have your, am you know. I doing?
2: That is such a great question. I often <laughs> ask myself that every day, just in general. What am I doing? <laughs> no, I mean, I've been here... I think since this place opened, I probably, watch, this is just a lie, but probably mm-hmm. been here about 50 times maybe doing oh, featured in other people's shows or coming and singing and, you know, different concerts and whatnot. And, um, you know, I always joke and say, they've been so patient with me. They've probably asked 10 times for me to come and do a solo show. And I'm always usually like, well, after falsetto, after waitress or whatever it is. And so finally I just, um, I realized I had a lot to say and I realized I had a lot to I had a lot to sing that you can't just do in you know a musical where you're playing a character, obviously, and so it just was time mm. it's just
0: it's time it was time <laughs> to do my own solo show I, I feel like you do both the classic stuff you were in falsettos really well and you, and you did the pop stuff at in waitress and so when when you when you're in these two modes like in, is there like a different it is like a different preparation for you? Is it, is it a different thought process in terms of going back and forth between these two kinds of music? Yeah, no,
2: it's, it's a great question because I, I love the fact that I've been cast in such, you know, versatile roles where I get to showcase different, um, you know, parts of the voice and also get to just express different Uh, parts of the training that I've, that I grew up training, you know, I wanted to be an opera singer when I was growing (laughs) up and then I saw kind of the opera and I was like, well, I like that kind of opera. But then I realized (laughs) the reason why I liked it was because it was so, you know, story-based and, and I just fell in love with musicals kind of in general in that form Mm -hmm. of storytelling. And so for me getting to play different roles where I get to still utilize kind of the different parts of the voice and, and, um, and, uh, just express in in different ways is, is probably one of my all time favorite things, um, to get to do, but it does require kind of different preparation. And sometimes the two don't always go, you know, in hand in hand. Like oftentimes when I'm, uh, when I'm singing more operatic stuff or more classical music, like you Mm -hmm. referenced, um, it requires actually less of the muscle, um, up there, and so you're just training your voice in different ways. I think one of the hard, one of the hardest times I ever had was when I was doing bullets over Broadway and mm-hmm. belting high Gs and A's. <laughs> and then at night I was going to the Met, you know, we only had two shows a week, but I was doing performing Deflator Mouse, which is completely different voice type. And so it is definitely kind of a, a harder balance. And so I tend to do, you know, kind of one at a time, mm-hmm. in a sense, but In this show, I I hope to think that you're going to get little, little, little hints of each one. So
0: I feel like you're one of those actors who can like disappear in, into a role because I feel like, like whenever I see you, it's like, wait, I didn't, that was her. (laughs) But at the same time, like you, you, you led a show and you, you play so and you also play like memorable, like side characters as well. And so like when you were starting out, like what was your goal? I knew I wanted to be on Broadway, like from a very, very young age. I definitely mm-hmm.
2: was like, this is what I want to do. I didn't know how. I didn't know necessarily why, other than the fact that I felt such an immense joy when I was watching musicals, right. Right. Whether it was on VHS and into the woods, which I talk about in my (laughs) show or whether it was going and seeing it, I just felt this sense of like belonging. Like it was just something that made my heart smile. And so, um, I don't know if I, I didn't really set up to say like, I want to be a Broadway star. It just, I, I always loved doing it. And then the result came, do you know what I mean? But like, Mm -hmm. I think if I would have just been focused on the result, um, that wouldn't have happened, but if I just kept, you know, um, working at what I loved, I think that's ultimately why it happened. Um, I love playing different types of characters and I take it as a huge compliment. If you know, you're like, I didn't even know that was you. I found that a lot and either, um, people, with Cordelia and falsettos or something like (laughs) almost like unrecognizable in a way. And, um, it's a huge compliment because as much as I want to always bring a part of myself to it. And I think I do, I have to. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as much as it's, it's, it's innately me, I think that it's a really um, cool quality for someone to just be able to watch the show and watch the piece and not necessarily go, I'm watching Betsy Wolf do Cordelia as opposed to, you know, I'm watching falsettos. And so there's something, um, if you stay really truthful to it, I think you allow the audience to have that, you know, belief.
1: Um, you have played many characters on stage, you know, like, and things like waitress and, uh, even in bullets over Broadway, when I see the characters and I go, that's the exact opposite of Betsy Wolf. Who's like, you wouldn't put up with some of the bullshit. (laughs) That your characters put up with.
2: <laughs> I have played a lot of Midwest characters who get effed over. Yeah, I do not know if I could say the <laughs> word, so oh, yeah. I just yeah. wanted to. Uh, you
1: can curse all you want.
2: No, but yeah. it is true. There's and and that's also though that's something to be said for the writing, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for there's a lot of stories that involve maybe female characters who at some point have had their partners, you know whether emotionally or physically abuse them. And then, um, you know, it's kind of watching them overcome it. And the, the, you know, I think the easy way is to say, well, I don't want to be a part of that story. Right. Or, or, um, like find me a woman who's never been through Mm. struggles. But I, I think what's more interesting is to, look at the piece, look at the journey, and instead of thinking like this person's a victim, find a way in which they contributed to it. So it's used as hopefully an educational opportunity for other women to empower themselves wherever they are. And so that's one of the things I've loved about Waitress too, for instance, is, you know, I think some people can view her as a victim, and I really just, I, I didn't. I wanted to see her, you know, take control over her story later. So
1: Right, because with you as Jetta, I could totally vision her opening like a chain of pie. She was force. a
2: fighter. Yeah, she was a fighter, and it's so much more interesting, I think, to watch someone fight than to watch someone be like,
0: "Well, this is the lot that I'm dealt with," which isn't the case. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's so funny that you mentioned that because Jose and I were having this conversation the other day, yesterday, about shows we've seen recently and how like the main motivator for women on stage is usually men or usually. You know, Men screwing them over. And so like, what kind of stories do you want to see on stage? Well, more of,
2: more of what we were talking about. I would, I would love to see stories where that's not necessarily the case where women have other motivators than just maybe the relationship in their lives or something directly connected to love. But I think we're doing a better job of it. I would like to say that, um, I think the film industry is doing a better job. I think Mm -hmm. that, uh the past couple of years should say something about musical theater and there's an indication of us moving forward and, and just dialing that that clock to a little bit more to include more adversity and and be more inclusive and, and tell all different types of stories. And I think that that's I think we're heading in the right direction. I have to I have to think that. Right.
1: No pressure, but like uh, I think it was almost three years ago when you were about to do Pirates of Penzance and City.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, We
1: spoke, and you mentioned you were working on writing something and possibly directing. What? So
2: I don't even know if I remember saying that. What? That is (laughs) crazy. I think I meant writing my show. I think I'm like literally meant this. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I like literally meant my cabaret.
0: Your cabaret. Yes, but
2: there are there are I know there are a couple there's a couple projects that I continually am working on, you know, that don't necessarily see the light of the day yet. But, um, but I think I, I think I know what you're referring to. I think that writing has just been really, um, healing in a way. I think that writing too allows me to say like what it allows me to understand more about myself too, and what stories I want to tell and, and what Mm -hmm. I find is missing or what I, what motivates me. And so, um, I hope that that someday reaches the, you know, reaches a, reaches a surface. But, um, but right wow. now it's, it's still very much there and, and in some form. So, yeah.
1: Can't wait to see it. Thanks. Thanks. The very first time that I saw you on stage, and I think that was in bullets. Cause I was just, I had just moved to New York.
2: Oh wow. 2014.
1: And I yep. saw you on stage and I was like, if anyone ever does a Madonna musical, That's their Madonna.
2: I can Uh, honestly say to you, (laughs) you are the first person that has ever told me that or compared me to Madonna. But you know what? I am going to take that and rock that. That is amazing. No one has ever told me that before. I love it. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I, I pray to the theater gods so it happens someday. But if you were able to... I'd have to
2: start going to the gym so much more. <laughs> like, I would have to, like, just completely change my whole lifestyle. I'm on it. Let's do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's bring the
1: gun <laughs> show. I also remember, like, a few years ago, I think, you know, on the, the Hollywood, the blacklist, the top screenplay was a Madonna biopic. So <gasps> I'm know. on the
2: lookout now. Yeah. I'm right. mm-hmm. so many ideas.
1: But if you were able to bring the life of you know, a hero of yours that you love either to a musical or to a film, who would it be and whose story would you like more of us to know about?
2: Mm. So I'm sure if I thought about this more, I would come up with some other names, but the name that popped like immediately into my head was Ava Cassidy because I'm singing, mm. uh, one of her songs and, and it will songs that she covered. And, and, uh, I just think she was one of the most, uh, one of the most talented, uh, singers of all time whose life was cut super short mm-hmm. and um wasn't even famous until uh, unfortunately after her yes. death mm-hmm. and so um obviously you know she's like a huge you know huge hero of mine so that's the name that first but like first pops into my brain so
0: you could do it she was also she was also blonde she was also and, blonde we and as a pop common. no and have a and has a <laughs> pop voice. You just gotta learn how to play guitar but she's, you can could yeah, there's super just, just, just
2: that. Yeah. Just that. But I'll we'll figure it out.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank We'd like to invite you. people all over the country to <gasps> go to your show. That's shops. true. Yes.
2: March 6, 7, 8, 9. And hopefully we'll have some other um, cities announced soon for you. So.
0: So, Jose, what did you think of To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway?
1: Again, like, this is, I don't don't even think, if we had planned this, like, meticulously, I don't think we would have been able to come up with the fact that this is an episode about men trying to take the narratives away from women. In this case, we have, oh, you asked me what I thought. Sorry, I went on like a, (laughs) uh, (laughs) well, I, I guess that's exactly what I thought. I am not a fan of Aaron Sorkin. This does not mean that I'm not a fan either. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not anti-Aaron Sorkin, but I'm definitely not pro-Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin is very talented. He's a very talented writer, but he does not know how to write women. All of his work is about men teaching women what to do. Like, Mm -hmm. that was evident in the West Wing. There's basically no women in the social network uh, and everything that he touches, oh, my God, That venue- did you ever watch The Newsroom? No. Oh. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that in many ways, Aaron Sorkin is the perfect example of what, you know, people on the far right think liberals are. Mm-hmm. And it's all about speeches and about being, like, grandiose, you know, like, doing this, like, grandiose uh, soliloquies, but never actually do any work. And that was evident in his version of *To Kill a Mockingbird*, which is now on Broadway. In which, you know, for as long as we've known the the book and even the movie, like the lead in that is Scout, the little girl, mm-hmm. who's Atticus Finch's daughter. In the, you know, in the current Broadway production of *To Kill a Mockingbird*, Scout isn't—you know this, right? Scout isn't the lead. No, she like, isn't. She's remembering her childhood with her brother and their male best friend mm-hmm. so it's like why would you have a woman remember when she could be helped not by one but two men because yeah women's memory is
0: not reliable yeah you know? we be cray
1: you need two men to exactly. remind you not even just one <laughs> so that's essentially but I mean fortunately for the production Celia Keenan-Bolger plays Scout and she does it so marvelously I cannot wait to see her win a Tony for this but the rest cannot be said for the production itself, which is just men preaching and yelling at women.
0: Mm-hmm. And the reason we're talking about this is recently uh, Scott Rudin sent a bunch of cease and desist letters to productions of To Kill a Mockingbird around the country saying, you don't have the right to produce this play. Stop doing it or else you know we'll take you to court. And the versions that this, the theaters were producing was... Uh, was is the only other um, play version of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is by Christopher Sergal, and it's been go- it's been produced around the country since the nineteen nineties, and so it's been produced. So it's been around for a very long time, longer than the Aaron Sorkin version, which was written for Broadway, and so there. And so it's been like a big controversy about, like, how dare this Broadway producer, like, tell these theater companies what to do, and they're community theaters, they're not taking any money, they just want to do this play and put it on for children, but they can't. And we recently ran an article about this American theater, about how... uh Apparently, the Harper Lee estate back in the day, like you know, when she signed, Harper Lee signed the rights to to Christopher Sergle to write this play. She didn't sign it for, for professional productions. She only signed it for amateur and community theater and educational, you know, high school productions. But apparently then over the years, like after Harper Lee died, like the Christopher Sergal estate then started licensing it out to professional productions. So basically not doing the thing that she didn't want them to do because men don't listen to women.
1: Why? (laughs) Why? Oh, God, that's so infuriating. But, you know, like, what, what's really, besides all of that, what's really disturbing about all of this is that Scott Rudin is basically trying to turn Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird into Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird. And the idea that a 100 years from now, people in the future think that Aaron Sorkin wrote To Kill a Mockingbird is just plain offensive.
0: Well, I actually don't think he's trying to, like, replace Harper Lee. I think the book... You know, it stands on its own. It's it's the book. I think he's trying to replace any other version that can ever be produced because apparently I heard that there was a production... Someone asked if Lynn Nottage could do an adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird and this, the Harper Lee estate was like, nah. If the only version of To Kill a Mockingbird is Aaron Sorkin's, that means that the version that's seen... That's going to be produced around the country until the end of time is only a version written by a white man, and that seems kind of that seems like a problem.
1: That is a problem. I
0: feel like other people, women or people of color, can have a better grasp of the material and not and not be so in love with the Atticus Finch character.
1: Yeah, because especially you know like uh, Jeff Daniels and the Broadway production is basically playing the same character he played in the newsroom which I did watch for the entire first season and I wouldn't say I deeply regret it but I'm I'm going to say I would not ever watch an episode of that show again because mm-hmm. I don't want to hear the world's had enough of white straight white men telling people telling women telling people of color what to do I don't need to go to the Schubert theater and have Jeff Daniels yell at me from a fake courtroom you know Saying what, you know, why he's moral and why he's right and everyone else should be silent.
0: Right. And I haven't seen this production, but when you saw it, did did you feel like the black characters were given any agency or, and or were the women given any agency or was it about like in the movie? Like it was Mm. just about Atticus Finch and how great he is. It's
1: quintessential Sorkin, but I mean, like even the movie. I think the I forgot the name of the actress who plays Scout. She was so marvelous, and I do feel like I know uh, in the movie both uh, Mary Badham and Gregory Peck, who play mother, I'm sorry, who play father and daughter, get equal, almost equal screen time. And the movie never condescends to Scout, who's such you know a bright character, and Mary Badham's performance is incredibly mature for any child actor but the movie doesn't do the thing that sorkin always does with women and you always feel that father and daughter have you know they're both equally smart obviously older people know more blah 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 but the child is witty and the child has a very strong moral compass while in aaron sorkin's version Atticus Finch is defining what everyone else's moral compass and moral center should be. He does this to their maid, who's a black woman called Calpurnia. He does this to his little daughter. And again, I think that if it wasn't because Celia Keenan bolger is such a brilliant actor, I don't think, you know, I think a lesser actor would not be able to do, to, to make justice or to give Scout any agency because Aaron Sorkin takes everything away from her. -hmm. She's just a prop. All the African American characters, and all the women, as in Annie Sorkin, are just props. Right.
0: And and what I find like really distasteful about about it is like all of the problems that's in this. It's not gonna be. No one else is gonna be allowed to fix it. No one else is going going to have a hand at this material. And so, like, whose idea was it to give Scott Rudin, like, the exclusive rights to all versions of To Kill a Mockingbird? Like, what is wrong with you people? Do better. Yes. Do better. Like,
1: I would, you know, like, just the idea of imagining someone, like, obviously, like, Lynn Nottage or some, you know, someone, like, I don't even, I can't even think. But not like
0: Dominique Morisot. Yes.
1: (laughs) Or who was our first
0: guest? Who was our uh, Alicia Harris.
1: Or someone like Alicia Harris, you know, like, giving us Tequila Mockingbird, for instance, from Calpurnia's perspective. Can you imagine mm. how exciting something like that would be? Like, we don't need more Atticus Finching.
0: I always felt like the point of Tequila Mockingbird was this young girl learning that racism is a thing, which, you know, don't even get me started about how *To Tequila Mockingbird is for white people. But and like you're taking you're taking this discovery this very complicated discovery that a lot a good amount of young people have i'm sure and making it about someone out about her father and not like allowing anyone else to like ha- to tell that story and i think if and, and i think if we're talking about you know the continued the need to continually diversify whose viewpoints were, you know, privileging, then I think maybe this is an opportunity for us to produce works by black writers who are talking about this and realizing that these white men are not going to save us and teach us about about racism. That sounds
1: lovely, but keep dreaming.
0: Huh? Right? (laughs) Oh, that
1: sounds so lovely. But, I mean, it's so telling that, I mean, why did Harper Lee creates cat. why didn't she write you know a uh-huh. little white boy who learned the lesson yeah she knew she knew that you know women are the future and she knew yes. that women would be more open to all of this so it's so infuriating that they're trying to take this away from her legacy and i guess you know like i don't think our our little rant is going to do anything against you know like we're not going to fix the problem with what's going on with this production and like scott rudin probably will never listen to this so i don't think there's much we can do on that front But I would say if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're just like a person, you don't have to be a parent to teach uh, things to children. If you're a person with a young person in your life who is reading To Kill a Mockingbird, who wants to read To Kill a Mockingbird, show them that Scout's the lead. Show them why it's so important to empathize with Scout and to understand her point of view and not... Atticus yeah. necessarily cuz to be honest if Atticus was a real life person he would be Mitch McConnell today probably mm-hmm. you know someone who grew up in the south who maybe thinks that uh economic interest is more important than being a decent good person
0: right well i think it's also that there's a reason like you teach it to young people it's because it's from the point of view of a young person and like and if *To Kill a Mockingbird* wasn't from the point of view of Atticus Finch, the these kids wouldn't relate to it as much. Like it wouldn't, they wouldn't feel it in their bones. And so, like, why would why would you produce a play where it's about an older person versus producing a play about a younger person? And there's so many plays about young people dealing with these issues today. And so, I guess if you're thinking about if you really want to do *To Kill a Mockingbird*. And you have the option of doing the Aaron Sorkin version? I I would suggest maybe don't. There's so many things out there that you can be producing on this topic. And then just, like, do a reading of the book. Do, like, a Gats-style, you know, live reading of the entire book. I don't think Scott Rudin's going to sue you for that.
1: Fingers crossed.
0: Fingers crossed. But, yeah, produce for colored girls. That's a wonderful play. Produce that.
1: Yes. And I'm going to make an even bolder crazy. Like, this is, This may be sound really crazy. Maybe it was a mm-hmm. tres leches. But if, if you want to do something with Mockingbird, do something like, you know, like the, a play of the Hunger Games Mockingbird, where you have... Mockingjay? I mean, <laughs> I'm calling it Mockingbird to fit into this. Do something like that, you know, like that, that was written by women. It stars of women. And, you know, like if Scott Rudin will give you Mockingbird, do Mockingjay. Jay. <laughs>
0: do the entire hunger games yeah, you know those kids need to learn about survival of the fittest because global global warming is coming and we're all going to be living in water world so we gotta learn how to survive in the wild I have some
1: bows and arrows ready to take on the fucking patriarchy
0: yes and racism anyway that went off Killed. that went off the rails pretty quickly Thank you all for listening. I, we hoped you enjoyed our rants about theater and the state of the Earth. And now we're going to prepare for our trip to Mars because we're all space, we're all spa
1: We all want to be space women, though.
0: Exactly. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave us a review or a rating. And let us know how you think, what you like, or how you think we can improve, or and stuff like that. Um, if you want to watch us interview Betsy Wolf, you can watch our it on our YouTube channel. Um, anything else you want to say to the people?
1: Drink wine to forget about global warming <laughs> for a little bit.
0: Anyway, thank you all, and remember, theater is more fun, and so is global warming when you take a friend.
1: <laughs> when you bring your little plant to space.
0: Yeah, let's bring a plant to space. <laughs>